Mississippi. According to the internet, which never lies, each year 96,000 people from 90 different countries register to compete in what's called an Ironman race. Now, if you're unfamiliar with an Ironman race, it is a long-distance race with three distinct parts, swimming, biking, running. Now, (laughs) it's called Ironman because it involves a 2.4-mile swim. Pretty sure I never swam that far in my life, ever, accumulated. A 112-mile bike ride and a full marathon that's 26.2 miles. Now, if that sounds like fun, after you maybe go to the doctor and check things out, uh, we have a training program, which I found online, which is based on, the, 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 they say, the, the principle of simplicity. It's a relatively low-volume plan appropriate for less experienced athletes. So I want to submit this to you, and you tell me if this, is, this sounds like fun. So here's the training plan to be able to be ready. It's low impact, it's easy, it's you know, as easy as it gets if you're not some kind of professional athlete. The first day is this. Well, you ride one hour and 20 minutes on a bicycle. What you do is you ride five minutes hard, 10 minutes easy, for an hour and 20 minutes. Then, afterwards, you swim 3,000 meters. That's the first day. The second day, they say you run an easy seven miles. Easy and seven miles don't go together unless I'm in the car. Day three is a swim that is 3,000 meters again and what's called an easy bike ride of one hour and 30 minutes. Day four, tempo run. One hour and 25 minutes. It's, quote, comfortably hard whatever that is. Day number five is endurance bike, and you need to ride 70 miles, and then, after you finish riding your 70 miles, a one-hour, what's called, easy run. And then Sunday, or the last day, I should say, is a five-mile easy run and a 4,000-meter swim. And then, on day number seven, in their benevolence, they give you a day off. Now, that to me, I don't know about you, but that to me sounds like a whole bag of not fun. (laughs) That sort of physical training is rigorous, it's demanding, it's laborious, it's time-intensive. To be able to compete and complete an Ironman race, you have to train like this to be ready. Now, this sort of physical training has a whole string of benefits, yet this morning... We're going to hear about another kind of training that's more beneficial. We're going to hear about a training in godliness. A training in godliness. The words that Paul is speaking is directed to Timothy and therefore to church leaders and pastors, but there is going to be application aplenty for all of us. Without godliness and without training in godliness, we will not make it through a, lot, through, through a race that's more grueling than any man, Iron Man could ever be. That's life. Life and the road we're on is more rigorous and demanding and laborious than any Iron Man. 
It is the most difficult of races. Today in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, we're going to look and see what a good servant looks like. Remember, the purpose of this book, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy overall, the purpose of the book is to describe to us how we're to act, what we're to be as a church. Remember, the church is called the Church of the Living God, but also the household of God. So every faithful local church around the country and around the world is called the household of God. And so today we're going to see a description of what good servants, good leaders, are called to be in their respective churches. These good servants in God's household, more than anything, must aim to grow in godliness. They're not going to be perfect, but they can be faithful. They're going to make mistakes, but they can ask forgiveness. They're not going to be flawless, but they can own their mistakes. Good servants for the Lord make it clear that their highest ambition is just to grow in godliness and set a pattern for others to follow. That's the idea this morning. And so we're going to see in three different ways how good servants or faithful leaders and pastors are to act. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. If you have a Bible, you can follow along as I read. God's Word says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would help us this morning. Lord, we stop and pause to pray, not just because that's what we do every week at this point in the sermon, but Lord, I stop and pause and ask for help. Lord, I pray that you would help me to faithfully articulate and expound your word this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be upon me. Help me to be able to push out the distractions, push out the questions, push out all those things that stick in my head, Lord, and I pray that you would help me to faithfully proclaim your word. I pray for all of us, Lord, that we wouldn't just be people who learn, but Lord, I pray that we would have expectation to encounter you through your word and through the preaching of your word, and I pray that we would collectively encounter you this morning. Holy Spirit, be amongst us. power. And in your name we pray. Amen. Good servants, as we see from our passage, there's at least three things, three, three things that typify good servants in the household of God. They refute, they train, and they hope. They refute, they train, and they hope. First, good servants refute falsehood. Look at verse 6, if you would, with me. Paul says to Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, now that should read brothers and sisters, he says, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now, what things is he 
meaning to put before the brothers and sisters. Now, immediately before this, we remember, if you were here last week, that legalism and the form it was taking in 1 Timothy chapter 4 was this radical asceticism or a self-denial. It has an appearance of godliness, but no real substance. Paul was reminding Timothy that legalism, which is just a call to, to act in certain ways to earn God's favor, uh, legalism always looks good, but it's actually a facade. False teachers had infiltrated the church in Ephesus with a message that Christians should not marry or eat meat. Why? Because these teachers believe that our bodies and any pleasure we experience with our bodies is wrong. Therefore, marriage and meat were off-limits. That's not a message in line with Christianity. You see, the trouble with legalism is that it always seems reasonable, but it's deadly. It has a sugar coating that conceals a malignant evil. At bottom, legalism teaches you to trust yourself and your ability to obey instead of Jesus and what he's done for you. When a good servant, a leader, a church leader, a pastor, is to put these things before the church. Pastors and church leaders are not commanding officers. What does the verse say? In chapter, verse 6 say, you will be a good servant. Pastors and church leaders are to be chief servants of a church. They're the ones who are not to put forth their own opinions about how things should go, but put forth the word of truth before the church to combat the error of legalism. Good servants don't just combat the error of legalism, but they constantly proclaim Christ and the hope that he offers. Pastors and leaders are called to serve and not be served. They're not commanders, they're servants. They're not wardens, they're servants. They're not supervisors, they're servants. They're not managers, they're servants. They point to Jesus and away from themselves. They make much of Christ's sacrifice and little of themselves. They work so that the church thinks more highly of Jesus every week, week to week, than of themselves. They look to expound scriptures and not personal opinions. They look to protect those that need help and encourage those that are down. Good servants understand that it is impossible for any church to think too highly of Christ. This Jesus is the one who has served us in ways that we could never do for ourselves. He is the one who died so that we might live. He is the one who lived the perfect life that we could never live. He is the one who rose from the dead so that we might not have to taste the substance of death. A good servant knows that Christ died for the church, not him. That Christ owns the church, not him. That Jesus gives sight to the blind, not him. That Jesus is the only one who promises to build his church. Good servants serve, but they don't build in the same way Jesus does. All that pastors do is through the lens of service, or it should be. They preach to serve, not impress. Teach to serve, not dazzle. Counsel to serve, not influence. Lead to serve, not amaze. Be, not to be amazing. Pray to serve, not to astonish. Good servants to the church are those that are trained in the words of faith and good doctrine. 
So notice, a good servant refutes falsehood by expounding the scriptures. That is the words of faith that we see in verse 6, and good doctrine, which just means a collection of teachings. Now, we know that there are lots of ways you can draw a crowd, and I heard this story about a pastor, and I won't use his name or name his church, uh, but I read this story in The Atlantic a few weeks ago. The author of the article says this. He, he quotes the preacher by saying, Before I turn to the word, the preacher announces, I'm going to do another diatribe. And then the author goes on to describe what that means. He says, Between 40 minutes of praise music and 40 minutes of preaching is the strangest ritual I ever witnessed inside a house of worship. This particular pastor calls it his diatribe. The congregants of this church in Michigan call it headline news. And for the next 15 minutes, the pastor, this author reports, does not mention the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, or the life everlasting. What he does is he holds court on his political opinions and his thoughts of how the direction of the nation from time every week. Now, his church went from a weekly attendance of 100 to 1,500 since COVID. Now, I would say, though, that him giving his opinion on the news of the day or the politics of the day is not something that's, that's going to nourish the church. It's not something that we're called to do as preachers. You see, we are called as preachers, Paul tells us, to put the words of faith and the good doctrine before the people. That's our call. This is one of the reasons that on Sunday mornings, our primary practice is called expositional preaching. This is where we collectively study the books of the Bible to understand what God is saying to us. There are many books in the world, but there is only one Bible. In the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, we have the inspired word of God. And so it's incumbent upon us to understand what God thinks. We don't need to go to the scriptures with what we think and make them fit into our message. But what we want to do is we want to to preach expositionally, which means to draw out the meaning of the text so that we can understand God's opinions on the local church, on all kinds of things. So that means that we're not going to preach sermon series based on Marvel movies or testimonies from famous athletes. It's also why we don't just cycle through Series, topical series about money, sex, parenting, vocation, or success. But what we want to do is we want to lay out before all of us the plain teaching of what God's Word says so that we can get our eyes off ourselves and look to Jesus and all He's done for us. Otherwise, we'll be perpetually and terminally self-focused. Our goal, together, and as leaders, our goal is to point us all collectively, together and individually, to Jesus, so that we might be fixed on Jesus. The best way for us to be fixed on Jesus is to recognize what the Scripture has to say and apply it to our lives. Good servants are those in the household of God who refute falsehood by holding up the truth of, about the truth of God's Word with Christ at the center. That's what a good servant's called to do. We see that in verse 6. But that's not all that good servants are called to do. Good servants are also called to refute 
falsehood. They're called to refute falsehood. They're also called to train hard. Good servants refute falsehood and train hard. Look at verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. And then he says, rather, train yourself for godliness. Now, last week, if you were here, Paul warned Timothy not to forbid marriage or meat, as both are gifts from God. And false teachers were peddling this lie that our bodies are evil and any physical enjoyment is tainted. That's false. That's, that's legalism, to add to the scriptures like that. Now, the problem with that kind of legalism and all kinds of legalism is that it has an illusion of spirituality. But it's like a desert mirage. All legalism is ultimately just an illusion. It's not real. Now, here's the thing that we might make. You might be excused if you think, well, all we're called to do to refute legalism is just sit back and let go and let God be passive. But that's never, ever the call for Christians. Obedience and radical obedience and the radical obedience we're called to live is never legalistic. So when Paul says, train yourself for godliness, he's calling Timothy to strenuous action. Strenuous action. He's calling him to, to entrust himself to the truth of Scripture and grow in godliness. He's calling him to sacrifice and work and give of himself so that he might grow in the likeness of God in Christ. Now, we Christians, we know we are at war. Not with any people out there, but with our arch enemies, sin, Satan, and the world. And by world, I don't mean the people. I mean the love, the things of the world, money and, and, and fame and those kinds of things, constantly press in on us, and we have to fight just to keep our heads on straight. So we must train hard for godliness. Remember, this, this kind of obedience is not legalism. Legalism is doing good with the goal of earning something from God. A legalistic heart is going to see God as unreasonable and angry, so what we need to do is just good things to put him off, to keep him off our backs. But that is not why we obey. We obey, why? Because we're called to follow Jesus with everything we're worth. The biggest misunderstanding of obedience is that many think it runs counter to grace. But grace and obedience are fast and forever friends. Grace and obedience are, are, are like two horses, in, two horses yoked together pulling one wagon. They, they, they are so close, they've never, ever been separated. Grace and obedience are the best of friends. If you pit grace against obedience, you do not understand who Jesus is. If you have literal, little, little desire for obedience you will have little desire to follow Jesus. Here's how it goes. The more you obey, the more grateful you are for grace. The less you obey, the less grace seems to ravish your soul. Now Jesus, he's not looking for balanced Christians. He's looking for Christians who follow him with all their heart and mind and soul. You can't come to Jesus and expect to be the same after interacting with him. 
He means for us to be changed, to be molded, to grow, to live a life typified by obedience. If you think it's easy to obey, it never really is. Following Jesus is not easy. All Christians, all of us, are called to follow Jesus, which means we're all called to obey. And as leaders, church leaders, are called to especially obey. We're called to be the ones who set a pattern for godliness. You see, we know that the message is not obey and be saved, but because we are now saved, we are also empowered to obey. And slowly over time, you will begin to resemble Jesus more and more. Remember verse 16, where we hear about godliness. Look at verse 16. If you don't have your Bible, it will be projected behind me. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16 says, Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. He, being Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into into glory. Now, that's the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness is that Christians, all of us, are to focus our efforts on Jesus Christ. We are called to be a people fixed on Him. He is the one who was manifested in the flesh, meaning He came to earth as a man. He was vindicated by the Spirit, meaning that when He died, He rose from the dead, thereby having all of His ministry vindicated by the Spirit of God. He was seen by angels. It wasn't just a a thing for humanity. This is a universal thing. He was proclaimed among the nations. We're one of those nations to which he's been proclaimed. He's been believed in the world, and he was taken up into glory. In other words, what we see here is the key to godliness is not just mere exertion on our part, but the key to godliness is Jesus Christ. Godliness does not have a secret, but Jesus Christ. If mankind could ever make himself godly, he would not need Jesus. But we have Jesus. God became man so that men and women like us, sinful men and women like us, rebels like us, could become the sons and daughters of God. And in fact, one day, we will all see Jesus. And John tells us of this radical transformation that will take place. He says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. One day we will see Jesus, and we will resemble Jesus perfectly. That's not, that day is not yet. But even in this life, those who believe that Jesus lived and died, rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father on our behalf, Those who believe in him and his message are already new creations. In another place, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, one of the ways that we become new, one of the ways you can tell that you're a new creation is, is that your desires shift. Your desire 
to follow Jesus, to obey Jesus, to look more like Jesus, grows. And the good servants of Jesus, the church leaders, that are entrusted with different churches, different households of faith, and your leaders here, our call is to both train you for godliness, but also, and even first, to train ourselves. To train ourselves. That means the greatest exertions your pastors give are in the effort to grow in godliness, or that's the way it should be. You see, it's very easy in ministry to become a professional, to be able to spin off messages or sermons or become some kind of expert in the scriptures without having the scriptures impact you. It's one of the, one of the vocational hazards of ministry is that you can be good at describing what the Bible says but bad at applying it with, to yourself. Paul wants Timothy to avoid that pitfall. He wants Timothy instead to train himself for godliness. Train himself for godliness. Why? Because godliness, verse 8 says, is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so as a church, your leaders, your elders, your pastors, all your church leaders ask you to pray. We do not want to be professional. We don't want to be people who are just able to stand up and say true things. We want to be people who preach this truth, to these, consistently preach these truths to ourselves before we ever open up these truths to anyone else. We want our, we want our lives to be typified by godliness. We want our lives to be like an arrow that points away from us and to Jesus Christ. The goal every Sunday when we gather is not for you to walk away and say, wow, that was, I love the music, or I love the preaching, or I love this, or I love that, but what I do is I love Jesus more. That's our goal. What, our, what we're trying to do is point us all to Jesus Christ and remind ourselves that he is the one that who, has, who has done all for us. Without him, we would have no hope. But we know that godliness is of value in every way. And no effort toward godliness is ever wasted. That is the promise of godliness. No effort to honor the Lord will ever be wasted here. One day we will all be rewarded by what we did for Him here on earth. So, good servants are meant to work hard to be godly and set a pattern. So how? How can good servants, how could your pastors, how can your church leaders provide a good pattern? These are ways in which you can pray for us. One of the ways that we work hard to grow in godliness is we, we want to work hard to love the right things. Because your heart is just like mine. I'm tempted to wander all over the place. We all are. You can pray that our hearts, your leaders' hearts, love the right things. You can pray that our spiritual disciplines in them, we're not looking for things we can teach, but what we're doing is we're looking for ways in which we can be impacted by Jesus and encounter God on our own. You can pray that we would work hard to know the Scriptures and be mastered by the Scriptures. 
We don't want to just be Bible answer men. What we want to be is a people that constant uh, leaders who constantly hold the Scripture up and see it for what it is, a mirror, so that we might look in this mirror and find how are we to change? What am I to do to change? You can pray that your leaders work hard to kill sin, to when they recognize that, they, that they've sinned, confess and repent and look for accountability and ask for accountability and work hard to grow in godliness. You can pray that your pastors work hard to live better than they preach or teach. You can pray that your pastors work hard to continue to learn, to work hard to honor the Lord in their minds and to govern their, to- govern their tongues, To work hard to pray instead of worry. Work hard to say no to unrighteousness and sin. To work hard not to be embittered by pastoral hardships. To work hard to make much of Jesus and little of himself. Now, none of these things come naturally to your leaders or any leaders. This is why we beg and plead and ask for you to pray for us. Because what what I want to do is be a leader who one day faces the Lord and the Lord says, you've been a good servant. I don't shoot for greatness. I don't shoot for fame. I just want to be recognized by the Lord as a good servant who puts before the church the words of life on a regular basis. So what have we seen? Good servants, they refute falsehood. They train hard for godliness. And lastly, in verse 10, we see they hope most in God. They hope most in God. Look at verse 10. For to this end, that's godliness, we toil and strive. Notice those hard work words. We toil, we work, we strive. Because, why? We have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially, that should probably be translated namely, of those who believe. We must put our hope on the living God again and again and again. It's not just something you do once and then move on from. We have to continually, every day, put our hope on this living God. You and us and all of us need to be those who put continually put our hope on the living God. This is, this is a continual, active, ongoing process. Pray that your pastors put their hope in the living God and not what the budget looks like or whether the church is growing or not or how people think of him or what people think about the job he's doing or whether or not his enemies come after him. Pray that he puts his, his, his hope on the living God and as new trials come up, may we remind ourselves that our hope is not found in our health or our economy or what happens in the midterm elections or what happens with inflation, or, or what happens with gas prices, but instead, may we be a people who put our hope only and secure, only and solely on the living God, because He is the one to whom we can put our hope upon, and he, we will not be disappointed. Our goal here at Center Church is to ensure that when anyone gets up and opens God's words, that we point opens God's word, and we point, we, we point everyone to Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen and ascended because our hope is only in Him. 
our hope for a church, our church, and our hope for your pastors as well. So now we know, in brief, what a good servant looks like. He refutes an inner local church. He refutes falsehood. He trains hard for godliness, and he hopes most in God. Listen, no matter how faithful your pastors are, and we strive for faithfulness and godliness, no matter how faithful we are, none of us will be able to serve you like Christ has served you. None of us are your Savior. None of us are your hope. None of us have what Christ has for you. We're merely faithful, imperfect servants who say, follow me as I follow Christ. That's our goal. That's our role. That's what we're called to be. So, let's continually fix our gaze on Him and press in and press on looking to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would I pray you would preserve our church, Lord, and preserve us. Lord, I pray that you would you would always have the elders of our church to be people who men who open up your word, who proclaim your truth, who preach you, Jesus, and not themselves. Lord, I pray that that we would be continually faithful, regardless of who occupies the office, the office of elder here, or lead elder, Lord. I pray that you would help us to be a place that constantly puts before everyone the hope of you, Jesus Christ. So we know, Lord, that you are the one in whom we have all, we have, we have all security. You are our rock and our redeemer. You have died and risen so that we might have hope. We, you are also our rock. We can take our stand on you and your promises. We can take our stand on you and your promises and nowhere else. We can hope in you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people, and I pray, a people that constantly fix ourselves on you. And I pray that, that the church's leaders would constantly focus people's attention on you. And I pray, Lord, for all of the leaders here at Center Church. I pray that you would keep us from sins big and small. I pray that you would give us, grant us the gift of humility to confess and repent without worrying about what people think. I pray, Lord, that you would help the leaders here, help us not to gain our identity from the roles we have, but instead I pray that our identities would be found in you. For the most important thing about us is not that we're pastors or leaders, but that we're in you. And so, Jesus, I pray, I pray, Lord, that you would bless our church with a desire to fix ourselves upon you continually, both today and forevermore. And in your name we pray. Amen.